The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So far as a church, when you include Sunday and Wednesdays, we've walked through every single word of Esther, Nehemiah, Jude, or sorry, Titus, Matthew, and Philippians. And so it was with some prayer and counsel that tried to decide what would be the next best book for our church and settled on the book of Jude. In part, we have to acknowledge up front that the book of Jude is unfamiliar. Many of us may first think of a Beatles song <laughs> before we think of a book of the Bible. Also, the book of Jude is challenging. It, it addresses many topics that are difficult and some that without question are culturally very prescient. But that is also why I think this book's brevity is so timely. This is a book that speaks very directly about things that are very challenging and confusing in our culture at this moment. So I'm prayerful that God will really help us through the book of Jude. It is a great book on crystal clarity of absolute truth. We need that because right now we live in a cultural moment of my truth versus your truth. My truth versus your truth. I thought Leanna Davis helped me in the way she wrote about this. Partly we have to admit we do this even within ourselves. If someone says something that we don't want to hear, we may later tell ourselves, well, that's just their truth. And I have my truth. And then we can alleviate that discomfort. Even Christians, though, have to be honest that this has pervaded the way even we witness the gospel to the world that doesn't know Jesus. Have you noticed that Christians are now more likely to say things like, well, you know, you should consider this because this is what worked for me. The gospel is now presented as an option, almost as if we're talking about a new, new nutrition plan. This was helpful to me. It, it might be helpful to you. And then we don't sound like we're being superior or saying, or saying anything that they would actually need to respond to. Frankly, even within the church, this my truth versus your truth issue has become pervasive. Davids writes, with so many evangelical positions on any given topic, we might sigh, ah, why so many variations in interpretation? And exhausted and confused, we may go a faulty step beyond having charity with, toward one another. We may be tempted to believe that differences in interpretation should be encouraged or valued. In fact, we've started to think that the idea of agree to disagree applies to truth. So that's why this morning's sermon is titled, Absolute Truth in a World of My Truth. And the absolute truth that we need is given to us by God in his word. And it's given very clearly to us by Jude. This text this morning, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 4, really just breaks into two big headings if you're a note taker. The first is, cherish the faith. And that's verses 1 through 2. And the next is contend for the faith, verses 3 through 4. So really simple outline to follow. Just two things. Number one, cherish the faith, verses 1 through 2. Number two, contend for the faith, verses 3 through 4. Look with me in God's word, Jude, verse 1. Who is Jude? Servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. What, is, what does that mean? When he describes himself as a brother of James... James, at this point, was so well known, he needs no further description. And that's because James 
is the leader of the church in Jerusalem along with the elders there. We know that from Acts 15. Paul calls James a pillar of the New Testament church. But James and Jude are also brothers of Jesus. We read that in Matthew 13, verse 55, and also Mark 6, verse 3. Of course, they're actually half-brothers of Jesus because Jesus was conceived of by the Holy Spirit. But James and Jude are brothers of Jesus. But did you notice Jude did not introduce himself as Jesus' brother? But he instead introduced himself as Jesus' slave. You may have an English translation that says servant, but it's not the Greek word diakonos. It's the Greek word doulos, which means slave. Now, I have a brother. I have never introduced myself as Johnny's slave. (laughs) And in the Bible, there's a group of brothers who have half-brothers. How did Joseph's half-brothers think of the idea of bowing to him? They planned to murder him. They threw him in a pit where he was taken as prisoner. So why would Jude acknowledge that he's James' brother, but be unwilling to describe Jesus as anything other than his master? And the answer is because Jude knows who Jesus really is. And you're not afraid to call someone your master when he became servant of all. And you're not afraid to confess someone as Lord who chose a cross that you deserve. And it's not hard for you to call someone son of God when he gave his life for the guilty. And it's not a burden to rejoice in a Savior who forgives and saves sinners like us. See, we hear the word slave and it hits us negatively. But it's an honor and privilege when Jesus is your master. Because if it's not him, it is something much worse. Jude acknowledges up front I want to be known as a slave to Jesus Christ. And then who does he write to? We have that in the rest of verse 1. He writes to those who are. Now, most of the letters we have in the New Testament say that they are written to the church of Corinth or the believers in Crete. But this letter does not specify the location or the specific body. And it's probably because Jude is writing to all Christians Jude is writing to them with some knowledge of things that all Christians face, no doubt. But here he's writing broadly to the church wherever it gathers. And here we have wonderful descriptions. And these are reasons we should cherish the faith. So Christian, here's what is true of us by God's grace. To those who are called. The word called is used to talk about the effective saving call of God where God calls us by name and calls us to himself. It's a call that never fails. It's a call that reaches out to people who are unworthy, but brings us by grace to God. Think of when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And by name, he raised the dead with specificity. And that's what God does still. When he calls us out of our spiritual death, Christian, you are called. The next description, Christian, you are beloved in God the Father. If you have a King James with you, I'll just tell you, just translation note, the King James unfortunately mistranslates sanctified by God the Father. The Greek actually is beloved in God the Father. God has chosen people for himself totally by grace, not by merit. So Christian, you are called. Christian, you are beloved. But now third, Christian, you are kept for Jesus Christ. Kept by Jesus Christ, kept in him, 
kept for him, kept until the day that you see him face to face. This word is a very important word in the book of Jude, the word keep. It appears five times. Verse one, the Christians are kept for Jesus. Verse six, angels did not keep their estate and they have been kept in chains. Verse 13, the ungodly are kept in black darkness. Verse 20 and 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. So Christians, we have a responsibility to keep ourselves in the love of God, but we will keep ourselves in the love of God because we are kept by Jesus Christ. I love to kayak. And when you're kayaking with the current, even in moments where you run out of energy, it keeps going the right direction. This is what it means to be kept for Jesus Christ. We still need to paddle, but there are days when we don't. And the grace that has begun a good work will complete it. Christian, you are called. You are beloved. You are kept for Jesus. But do you think of yourself that way? All of us have a view of who we are. It may show up in a brief bio or a resume or a social media account handle or even just your own self-talk. You think of yourself a certain way. You might say, well, I'm a mother and that's what gives me value or I'm a businessman and I'm successful or you might think I'm attractive or I'm the funny one or I'm well-liked or athletic or I'm intelligent. Perhaps your self-talk is actually from the other direction. I'm a loner. I'm a failure. I'm unwanted. No one would care to get to know me. Think of how Jude describes Christians. We are slaves of Jesus, which is a privilege. We are called and beloved in God. We are kept for Jesus Christ. Christian, are you viewing yourself that way? I belong to Jesus. I'm a slave of nothing or no one else. Nothing else has absolute power over me. I'm called and beloved by God. Nothing could destroy that. Nothing could improve that. I'm kept for Jesus. My life has a purpose. It has a goal and it will be accomplished. Christian, don't forget who you are. You are called, beloved, and kept by Jesus Christ. In fact, the view of who you are, your identity, we might say, shapes how you live. I think this is illustrated really humorously by Charles Dickens in his book, Great Expectations. I love that book. There's a character in that book you may know. She's known as Miss Havisham. Miss Havisham is hilarious. She's an elderly, wealthy woman, and she lives in her house very eclectically. She wears the same old wedding dress every day of her life. She has all the clocks in her house set to 20 minutes to nine. She wears only one shoe. Why does this woman do this? Because her wedding day, she was jilted by Compison, who didn't show up for the wedding and she only had one shoe on, so she refuses to put another one on. <laughs> the time was 20 to nine, so all the clocks are set at 20 to nine. And this single tragic event defines everything about her. She adopts the beautiful young girl, Estella, and grooms her to enact revenge on all evil men. So Havisham's identity is totally this one single event in her life. Christian, your identity is an event, but it's an, it's an event that's not tragic. It's an event that's wonderful. It's an event of the time that God in grace called you, opened your eyes to realize that he sent his 
own son, Jesus, and that his son took everything on his body that was against us and God, all the wages that we've accumulated that should result in condemnation, Jesus paid for on the cross and he rose. And when that moment becomes clear to you, you now have a life-defining identity based on a true, wonderful event. Christian, you are called, beloved, and kept. That's who you are. And when you know that, you rejoice in what that means. So verse two, this is Jude's prayer wish for believers. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love. Mercy will be a theme throughout the book. Later in the book, Jude will say, be merciful to those who doubt. As a pastor, this has been convicting for me to remember why I especially need to be merciful with those who are doubting and struggling. You know, sometimes I need to remind myself I have the privilege of studying the Bible for hours every week, but many other people do not. And their background is different and their time is different and their struggles are different. And we ought to be merciful to those who doubt. We should pray that mercy and peace and love are multiplied in people's lives. As Jesus said himself, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As Christians, we must cherish the faith. Our faith is our identity. It's who we are in Christ, and it's what it is to be who we are. But then Jude pivots the letter. So number one was cherish the faith. To be called, beloved, and kept. But now number two is contend for the faith. And it's necessary that these go hand in hand. Look with me now in God's word in verse three. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Jude tells us to contend for the faith. He appeals to us to contend for the faith. But let me pause to first say what he would have preferred to write about is to rejoice in the common salvation. Here's why we need to pause there. Christian, our default desire must always be first to cherish our common salvation. Can I tell you this morning, the church does not need more internet watchdogs. <laughs> who joyfully get on and find fault with other brothers and sisters. Many Christians have convinced themselves that they're a modern-day Martin Luther when actually they're just a selfish, fault-finding discontent with a keyboard. That is the reality. And if you do not cherish the faith, you are not ready to contend for the faith. See, Jude's point is, I so cherish the faith. That's what I want to write about. All the great salvation we have in Christ. But there is a time where we have to contend for the faith. If you don't cherish the faith, your contention will only be contentious and you'll damage the faith. But if you cherish the faith, then with lament and a heavy heart, you know, as Ecclesiastes says, if I paraphrase, there's a time for peace, but there is a time for war. There's a time to laugh, but there is a time to weep. There's a time to sow and there's a time to tear up what has been sown. And so there is a time to contend. 
We face the same urgency to contend in every season of every generation. And let's notice what Jude had to contend for. Let's continue in verse 3. Contend for the faith. Here's the thing that we cherish, the faith that we're willing to contend for. Contend is a strong word. It means to strive with all your God-enabled might. It's normally used in an athletic or military context. And here's why that's important. Contending with all your might means it will exhaust you and it will cost you. If you're going to contend for the faith in the right demeanor, in a gracious demeanor, it will absolutely cost you and exhaust you. It will hurt to do so. But we contend for it because it's the faith. Notice the word the This is not my faith. This is not your faith. This is not my truth. This is not your truth. This is the truth. And it is contained in a definitive set of propositions. Notice the next phrase says, once for all delivered. If something's been delivered once for all, it's delivered as a package. What is that package? It's the Bible. The faith once for all delivered is what you now hold in your hands. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing can be subtracted from it. It is the once for all faith. It is truth packaged and delivered. But the reason it has to be contended for is because there are some who claim to be Christian who are subverting it. Would you continue as we look in verse 4? For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in the text here that these people have crept in. Notice the word in, meaning they're on the inside of the walls of the church, so to speak. They're in the Christian community. And yet they're designated for condemnation. Do you know what that means? Not everyone who says they're a Christian is actually a Christian. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. So according to Jesus, many who say they are Christians are not actually Christians. The fact that they've crept in, notice they're they're creeping in is described as unnoticed, which means their true motives remained hidden. Their impure desires were unseen. I want to make sure we're clear this morning that We tend to think of false teachers, and when we hear a word like that, we think of someone who has a television show or a book or a radio program or a blog. But these people crept in just like normal parishioners in pews. Surely we don't want to have a culture of suspicion, but we must be discerning enough to know that normally the way the grace of God is perverted is just by casual rejection of Scripture's authority in normal conversation. So here Jude warns the believers of those who creep in. Their creeping in is ultimately an issue of whether or not God's people will submit to God's word, the faith. This has always been a problem, by the way. I was reading Isaiah 30 this week, and in Isaiah chapter 30, the leaders of Judah want to partner with Egypt 
God had explicitly told them to not partner with Egypt. But then do you know what the people said in Isaiah 30? This is an incredible quote of the Bible. Isaiah 30, 10 through 11. Here's what they said. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. They literally said out loud, just tell us lies that we want to hear. Do you think there are people today who would rather listen to lies than biblical truth? Do you think some of them go to church? They do. 2 Timothy 4 says this, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Brothers and sisters, that time has come. In fact, should we not examine ourselves? Haven't you ever been in a sermon and thought, can't you just entertain me? (laughs) I mean, can't you just scratch the itch I have? I don't want to hear truth. That's uncomfortable truth. It makes me feel bad about myself. Give me something different. That desire is one we all have if we're not careful. Notice what that desire leads to. Verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Our brother read verse 5, 6, and 7, and those are three examples of condemnation, of the judgment of the people in the wilderness who complained, the Egyptians who pursued in the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea collapsed on them, the angels who fell, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This text is reminding us that all who oppose will eventually be condemned. And in fact, God has decreed such from eternity past. Proverbs 16 verse 4 says this, the Lord works out everything for its own ends, including the wicked for the day of disaster. These people are ungodly. The end of verse 4 says they are ungodly people. And notice how we know they're ungodly. What do they do? The end of the verse says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. That's a word that throughout this book will mean sexual immorality. Don't, don't miss this, okay? They take God's grace and then they pervert it so that they can pursue sexual sin and say that God's okay with it. All right, to pervert something means to take something that had a good purpose and then use it for a bad purpose. Think of a pair of scissors. If you use them to murder someone, that's not their intended good purpose. You can pervert a good thing and take it in a bad direction. God made sex. It's a good thing. God made marriage. It's a great thing. But you can pervert it and then claim that God gave the grace to okay your perversion of it. That's what's happening in verse 4. Do you think it's still happening? So please don't be confused and think like, boy, you know, the church is facing all these unique challenges today. No, nothing is new under the sun. There have always been people that have taken the grace of God and perverted it as a license to continue in sin. In Romans 6, we read, should we continue in sin so that the grace of God may abound? Verse 2 says, God forbid. Verse 4 says, we who've been saved are to walk in newness of life. On the matter of sexuality, it is so easy to find alleged Christians who are perverting the grace of God. As we walk through the book of Jude, we'll talk explicitly about what sexual sins are now being called good. They were called good in Jude's day as well. But this morning, I just want you to notice from verse 4, 
how these people are described. If you pervert the grace of God into sensuality, you also do what? Look at the end of verse 4. You deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Did you know you cannot have both? You cannot pervert God's gracious design and claim Jesus at the same time. You either follow God's good design and have Jesus, or you reject God's good design and therefore you also reject Jesus as Master and Lord. This connection cannot be broken. Don't you love the word only in verse 4? He's the only Master and Lord. And Jude wrote that at a time when a lot of people claimed Caesar. So there's only one. So let me give us five principles that will, I think, guide us. These are not on notes anywhere, and I know I'm giving them quickly, but five principles that I think will guide us well by God's grace through a book like this. And I'll spend more time on the first one. Here's the first one. It is not always best to contend. Praise God, we don't need to contend all the time. Hopefully our default desire is to cherish the faith. It is not always best to contend. But when we must contend, we must And we must do so without being contentious. It's not always, we don't always need to contend, praise God. But when we do, we have to. And we should do so without being contentious. I want to give you a few examples from our history, our history as a family, church history. In the 300s AD, there was a Christian named Athanasius. And he was contending for the faith. He was contending that Jesus is truly God. Many people opposed him and said, no, Jesus is kind of like God. But he's not really God. That false teaching is called Arianism. And today it is what the Jehovah's Witness community is based on. Athanasius wouldn't move an inch. He said, no, the Bible's clear. Jesus is truly God. And so at one council, he was told, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And he responded, then I'm against the whole world. Another person from history, William Tyndale, He was born in 1494. He lived in 1536. William Tyndale translated the Bible into English when it was illegal to have the Bible in your own language. Imagine a time when you could not have the Bible in English legally. When Tyndale translated the Bible in English, he was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church. They then poured gunpowder on his body and literally blew him to pieces. While he was living, he said this, If God be on our side... What matter maketh it who be against us, be they bishops, cardinals, or popes? And the last thing he said audibly before he died, he prayed while he was being burned at the stake, God opened the king of England's eyes. God answered that prayer, and that's why you have a Bible in your hand today. Third person I want to tell you about is Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546. He's best known for being clear that the Bible teaches we are declared right in God's sight, not by something we've earned or contributed to, but by faith alone in what Jesus Christ has done for us. He spent his whole life in fear of martyrdom. And at the Diet of Worms or the Diet of Worms, he was brought thinking for sure, this is it, this is where I'm going to be killed. And he was put on counsel, and here's what he said. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. He also wrote, peace if possible, but truth at all cost. Let me tell you about William Carey. William Carey lived in 1761 to 1834. 
William Carey was the first person to believe that the Bible truth, the gospel, should be taken to people who live elsewhere. Isn't that crazy? He was the first. In the, in the early 1800s, he stood up at a conference and said, isn't it right for us to take the gospel to those who live in foreign lands? And an older pastor said this to him out loud, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do so without consulting you or me. <laughs> and then Carey said, should we not expect great things from God and attempt great things for God? Let me tell you about Charles Spurgeon. He lived in 1834 to 1892, and he lived through what is now known in church history as the downgrade controversy. It's when in the Baptist Union, the pastors decided that they no longer believed the Bible was actually breathed out by God and that Christ was the only atoning salvation. And so Charles Spurgeon wrote this. A chasm is opening between men who believe their Bibles and men who are prepared for an advance upon Scripture. The house is being robbed. Its very walls are being digged down. But the good people who are in bed are too fond of the warmth and too afraid of getting their heads broken to go downstairs and meet the burglars. Inspiration and speculation cannot abide in peace. Compromise, there can be none. We cannot hold the inspiration of the word and yet reject it. We cannot believe in the atonement and yet deny it. We cannot hold the doctrine of hell and yet talk of the progress of human life. We cannot recognize punishment of the impenitent and yet also indulge in a hope that there's a second chance after death. One way or the other, decision is the virtue of the hour. I'll tell you about another, if you'll indulge me. W.A. Criswell, some of you know who he is. Well-known Southern Baptist pastor in First Baptist Church of Dallas for five decades. He was also the president of the SBC on two occasions in the 1970s. The Southern Baptist Convention was this close to following the rest of the denominations and rejecting the authority of Scripture, rejecting Jesus Christ as the exclusive Savior. And in a speech that was incredible, W.A. Criswell got up and said, Wherever there is a true prophet of God, he will preach judgment. These so-called ministers of God speak all things nice. There's not any hell and there's not any judgment of God. In our enlightened and sophisticated day, we stand up and speak of the love of Jesus. We speak of peace. We speak of all things beautiful. But remember, the same book that tells us about good tells us about the bad. The same revelation that speaks to us about heaven speaks about hell. The Bible that presents the Lord Jesus as Savior is the same Bible that presents to us the devil as our enemy and adversary of damnation and destruction. The two go together. If there's not anything to be saved from, we do not need a Savior. Born in 1939, I'll give you one who's currently living, and that's Pastor John MacArthur. Did you know that last month, Pastor John MacArthur preached a sermon from 1 Corinthians 6 titled, Such Were Some of You. And in the sermon, he explained that people need to be converted out of sinful lifestyles so they can live a godly lifestyle. And YouTube, which is ostensibly a public uh, business, has removed his sermon from the website and has deemed it hate speech. So this is the culture we live in. And it's the culture Jude lived in. So I have one question for us as a church today. Will we trust and obey God's word even when it's culturally uncomfortable? Because brothers and sisters, there are going to be many moments 
were to contend for the faith means you go stand over here with Jesus and everybody else stands over on that side. Number two, the faith is not human tradition, but God's revelation. The faith is not human tradition, but God's revelation. Number three, the faith must be defended, especially from those who speak in God's name, yet deny his word. Number four, contending for the faith is most urgent when the voices destroying it are professing Christians. Number five, the specific challenge to the faith in Jude's day and ours was sexual immorality. So now on your bulletin, three closing words of application. The sermon title, Absolute Truth in a World of My Truth, three closing words of application that are on your bulletin. Let us rejoice in the faith, cherish the faith. We have a wonderful Savior named Jesus Christ, and it is because of him that we are called, beloved, and kept. Number two, let us recognize absolute truth being from absolute authority. Only Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Let us follow him and recognize such. And number three, without being contentious, let us contend for the one true faith in a world of, quote unquote, my truth. Let us contend for the one true faith in a world of, quote unquote, my truth. This morning, do you cherish the faith? Will you contend for the faith? Let us pray together. Father, thank you for the one true faith. Thank you, Lord, that there is one and only one way, truth and life, and no one goes to the Father except through him, and his name is Jesus. Perhaps someone this morning does not know Jesus. Help them to realize that they either have Jesus as their master or they have something much, much worse as their master. Lord, help them to move from slavery to sin to being able to claim Jesus as their only Lord and Master and give them the willingness to do so when they realize that he's the only good Master who gave his life for the sheep and on the cross took our debt and has risen victoriously. Thank you for such a good Savior. Lord, we are in a moment like Jude's where there is an urgency to be clear on what you tell us in the Bible. Would you help us to make a commitment this morning, Lord? Help us to commit that we will trust and obey the Bible. Help us to commit that we will trust and obey the Bible regardless of what other people are doing in this culture, even if they claim to be Christian. May we test everything by the truth. As Jesus said, sanctify them according to the truth. Your word is the truth. Lord, I pray that for our church. We are in a time of difficulty. But Lord, I also pray that our demeanor would remain gracious. May we not be rancorous when everything we have we were given by grace. Help us to be merciful with those who doubt, but help us to be clear with those who would pervert the grace of God and give us the discernment to know when and how to speak. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, 
go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.